Welcome to Top Shelf at the Merrick Library with your host, Carol Ann Tack. Welcome to Top Shelf. I am your host, Carol Ann Tack, and I thank you all for joining me. Listeners, I am very excited to welcome back to the podcast for the third time, and yes, he keeps coming back, award-winning author James Wade for his latest novel, Beasts of the Earth. Everyone remembers James Wade's first two novels, the award-winning All Things Left Wild and the critically acclaimed River Sing Out were both praised as rhapsodic and haunting. And October of 2022, James Wade gifted all of us with Beasts of the Earth and critics are calling it his most powerful work to date. Thank you once again for joining me on the Top Shelf Podcast. Are you kidding me? Thanks for having me back. I feel like the the old SNL sketches where Steve Martin or Alec Baldwin or whoever would host for the eighth or ninth time. I need to get a robe. There needs to be some kind of special green room for like three timers and four timers. No, this is amazing. I'm, I'm, I think that if I ever start to get writer's block or run out of steam, I think that one reason I'll be able to power through is because at the the light at the end of the tunnel will be coming on this podcast to, to talk to you, right? So <laughs> Amazing to hear. I am so appreciative of that. And as we were talking a little bit earlier off mic, I remember interviewing you in August of 2020, and we were both right in the, the whole country was right, probably the world, in the thick of COVID lockdowns. And I can remember exactly where I was. I had to shift my equipment to a different location to do these this interview. And it was such a great interview. And I remember thinking, gosh, that was 2020, which really <laughs> half the time seems like yesterday and half the time seems like 10 years ago. But you keep delivering the hits. Even through COVID, you kept giving us I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you do that. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I, I heard from a lot of authors during COVID about how it either helped or hurt them being locked down and just everything being social distance and places closing up for a while. And for me, it just it gave me more time to write. I also I had a baby at the time, which is tough, but... What I learned is that almost three-year-old is tougher than a three-month-old. And so, so no, it was just looking back uh, almost weirdly with fond memories of that time, at least from the work side of it. You know, obviously, I'm so happy that we've all got out there and gotten vaccinated and can run around and, and be around each other more. Sometimes, I don't know, I'm, I'm very introverted when it comes to being in groups and stuff. And so even still now, like when Jordan and I take our, our kiddo out, you know, because we don't want her to miss out on those childhood things. We take her to, you know, like Christmas parades and stuff like that. And I'm just like, wow, this is this is a lot of people. And, you know, somebody will ask, are you, were you worried about COVID? I'm like, no, I was like this before COVID. I just, it's just a lot of people. Um, <laughs> well, so, when, so if I, if I'm hearing you correctly, what I'm hearing is perhaps writing the second and third book was a little easier <laughs> than raising a child during COVID is what I... A hundred percent. Yeah, the, the writing is the easy part. My, my wife, she calls herself a stay-at-home mom, which is hilarious because she does a million things, but she does carry the mantle for child-rearing. And man, I I feel almost guilty, honestly, that like I'm in here and I'm working hard, but there it's nothing in comparison to what she does. And so, yeah, she's, she's lifting the heavy weight and without her, there would be no books because 
because we would I would just be chasing my daughter around and playing hide and seek. And we are uh, we are deep 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 into the b-sides of where to hide in this house right now (laughs) and you mentioned jordan whom i adore that woman is unstoppable she needs her own postage stamp um (laughs) and i do want to thank the both of you for joining me on the thrill fest for merrick library for three years in a row we have hosted thrill fest and it's a great show about chills and thrills and horror. And both of you bring your A-game every year. You're three-time visitors to that. And anybody who has missed any of those, you can find all my interviews with the wonderful Wades on Instagram, Merrick Library's Instagram, or Merrick Library's YouTube page. And of course, I digress. Anyone who might have missed this remarkable third book of yours, Beasts of the Earth, Please tell listeners about this book. Yeah, it's a little different for me because it was my first shot at like somewhat of a murder mystery. You know, I wouldn't call it like a super thriller in in the sense of like... 10 characters in a room and somebody did it. It's, it's not necessarily a mystery, but but this is the first one that kind of follows the thread of there's this terrible act of violence that happens. And then we see how that impacts the folks that are involved with it. And our main character is Harlan LeBlanc, who is a groundskeeper at a high school in Central Texas in the 1980s. And Harlan has, in this very careful and meticulous way, he's crafted his life to to stick to a, a particular routine. And a lot of folks do that for one reason or another. And usually it's to keep themselves from kind of going off the rails, right? And that can mean to keep themselves from eating junk food or in Harlan's case, to keep himself from becoming kind of this vigilante for justice. And, and so we follow Harlan as he tries to basically stay sane and stay peaceful as these terrible things are, are happening around him. And then kind of the B plot takes place about 20 years earlier in the swamps of Louisiana, where Michael Fisher has to deal with his very violent, very deranged father who's been let out of prison early and basically just inflicts this world of trauma upon Michael. And we we follow him to see how he deals with that and how he carries that trauma. And so those two stories kind of coalesce under this theme of, yes, the world is a tough place. You know, that's not groundbreaking, but that's what I've written about in my first two books. But I wanted to go a little further in this one, which is kind of what happens after the trauma and what happens to our mind after we, you know, how do we deal with it? And so that's what we really explore with these two characters in Beasts of the Earth and see what they need to do, each of them, to find peace or to live a satisfying life. I think we all want to be moral people and we want to be kind and full of grace and all of these wonderful things. And that's really easy to say when things are going well, right? What about when things go wrong? And so we explore that in a, obviously a very exaggerated way in the sense of when things go wrong, when we take kindness and grace and all of these things and we just drag them through the mud and do everything possible to break them what does that look like in the human psyche and the human mind? And so that's that's kind of the exploration of Beasts of the Earth. And of course, there are sub-themes about environmentalism and, and economy. And, and obviously, I don't think that I'm capable of writing a novel without bringing a lot of religious undertones into it. And so there's that as well. But, but overall, I think the main theme is just how we handle trauma as a species, really. 
And you nailed it. You nailed all of that in this book. This book is not Glass Onion. I loved Glass Onion. This is not hate on Glass Onion. Uh, because I, I knives out, I thought both of those were amazing. It is a mystery, but it's also this modern fable. And right off the bat, in the first of two epitaphs, the first is from Isaiah. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all of these things. And then the second epitaph is, if God meant to interfere in the degeneracy of mankind, would he have not done so by now? And that, of course, is from the one and only Cormac McCarthy. Both of those epitaphs set the reader up for everything that comes next in the 239 pages that follow. And man, I can't think of a better way to introduce the story. Talk about choosing those two epitaphs. I don't know what it is about that, but when I get to choose that stuff, that is like one of the most, it's like the title of a novel and the epitaphs are so much fun. And I think it's because the pressure is off you a little bit. Like I didn't write it, you know, (laughs) um, and, and you get to cycle through all of these amazing literary quotes. I wanted to use those two because they are absolutely in juxtaposition of one another, right? It's one of the things, the old story about the barn catches fire and everyone runs outside to try to put the fire out and then it begins to rain. And we praise God for the rain to put out the fire. And then the father asked who sent the fire. And so I don't know why I'm so obsessed with that, but I have been obsessed with that line of thinking for so long, because just from like a, I don't know, from almost a mathematics standpoint, from like this rationality standpoint, like when good things happen, we give thanks. And when bad things happen, we say it must have been the bad guy. It must have been the bad deity. Or we shrug our shoulders and say, that's just the way it is. So in this world that we've created in Beast of the Earth, these characters, especially LeBlanc, He's kind of let down throughout his life by the justice system, by religion, by all of these things that we learn when we're young are in place to kind of keep the bad men away, to keep the wolves away from the door. He's let down by that over and over and over again. And so that's what drives him essentially to kind of take justice into his own hands or at least have that thought. Again, that's kind of the overarching theme is even with the prologue, which, you know, I've heard from readers, hey, I'm 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 a Christian and this was a little offensive or whatever. And I, and I understand that, but I tell them that it's not so much to lambast anyone's faith or, or, or belief or anything like that, but it is to draw a parallel between you could, you could use it for family, for government, for anything you want is when do we have trust and when is it appropriate to be individual? So it's it's nuanced, right? There's a time to take things uh, into your own hands, and there's a time to have trust in society and the world around you. And as per usual, I ask these questions about what, when is the time to do what, and I don't give any answers um, because I don't know, right? That's the whole point. Is is so much of this is 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 me working through my own trauma, me working through my own questions. It's selfish is what it is. But But I don't know if I I would say selfish because I feel like, (laughs) I I mean, I think a lot of people feel that way. I think a lot of people question the things that are going on. They question, you know, why is this happening to me or why is this not happening to me? You know, there's a quote in the book and I, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it's sort of like the people who follow all the rules and do all the right things maybe don't necessarily get the things that 
they feel. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's about, I think the quote that you're thinking of is about one of the characters asked Harlan if he thinks that people get what they deserve. Yes. And the character that asked it is in such a vulnerable state because it's almost like a childlike question, right? right? As we grow up, we have the loss of innocence and all those things. We start to understand that, of course, the world is not fair. But even in saying those things, even in, even in acknowledging that the world is not fair, that you don't always get what you deserve, we kind of have this part of our brain, though, that does hang on to that a little bit. Well, if I just work hard, things will work out. Or if I do all the wrong things, that's no way to get ahead. And, and yet we see it. Isn't that you know, hope? We, that's hope. That's optimism. Not everybody does something thinking you're going to get something good back, but you certainly in the back of your mind, if I, I just need to be a good person, if I'm a good person. And I found the quote and he says, in fact, I think it's usually those who least deserve something good or bad that end up finding it on their doorstep. You know, James Wade, not for anything, but you have these sentences sprinkled throughout this book, and each one is so philosophical, and it's very spiritual, and it's more than just good versus evil. You do that in almost all of your books. You mentioned the prologue. I just want to digress for a minute because you mentioned the prologue of the book. When I received the galleys gratefully from Blackstone, they sent me the e-galley and then they sent me a paperback version. The prologue was not in either one of those. <laughs> so when Blackstone then gifted me the hardcover, the finished version, there is that prologue. How did that prologue come to be in the book? So I am so non-confrontational that I will often order a hamburger and just pick the things off of it that I didn't want on it. Because A, I didn't want to be like confrontational by ordering no pickles and no tomatoes. You don't want to be that guy, right? Yeah, but also if it comes and they've gotten the order wrong... Then I'm in the situation of, well, do I tell them that I've said no pickles and tomato? It's just this whole thing. So I just avoid it by ordering a hamburger. And I say that to say that I wrote the prologue when I wrote the novel and I gave it to Blackstone. And this is not obviously unusual between writers and editors and publishers. But they said, you know, the prologue is not a part of the narrative, which is true. The prologue is a very short, almost micro-fiction fable unto itself. And to me, I like the Cormac McCarthy, Thomas Wolfe, William Gay is great at this. You, You do a prologue that sets the tone and creates an atmosphere and speaks to the theme of the novel, even if it doesn't directly address the narrative. And so that's what this prologue is. And and when I sent it to Blackstone, they were like, you know, hey, this is the first thing the reader's going to see, and it has nothing to do with the actual plot. And, And so we think maybe let's take it out. And again, not to mention, like I said, I completely understand how it could be controversial as well. And so me being very non-confrontational just said, sure, okay, yeah, that's great. Whatever you guys want, I can't believe I get to be a writer. And um, (laughs) and so so what happened is I got the arcs, the the e-galley, just like you did, and, and I looked at it, and two things struck me. One is there are some sprinkled little crumbs throughout the book that do actually speak directly to the whole the watch pieces are all through exactly and i had kind of overlooked that fact and i felt like it wasn't strong enough it it seemed a little random but the second thing was i just felt 
so strongly, even as somebody that does not want to put his foot down on anything, I felt so strongly that I emailed Blackstone and I said, you guys, I love y'all so much. I don't think that I'm going to be okay if this book comes out and it doesn't have that prologue. I just think that it's so perfect for what the book is actually trying to talk. I mean, honestly, please read the whole book. But if you want to look at the themes, you could probably get them all just through the prologue. And so Blackstone being awesome like they are, they just said, yeah, if it means that much to you, absolutely. Let's play with it. Let's make sure that, that it's as strong as it could be. And then we'll find a way to fit the prologue back in there. And so so they did that. And so now it is kind of cool because we have this ARC that is without the prologue and then the final copy, bam, there, the, the prologue is. And I just, I just think it's a stronger piece of literature with the prologue attached. Also, listening to Roger Clark narrate that piece in the audiobook, he has such a voice for narrating. I mean, good grief. Well, that's why he does what he does. But listening <laughs> to him read that prologue was really kind of mind-blowing for me. I, I can't imagine the book without it, now that I know. Um, let's talk about Harlan a little bit, because I loved Harlan LeBlanc. And the very first page after the prologue, when he did wake, it was darkness. There was only a mattress. And LeBlanc sat on the mattress edge with a rounded back and his hands in his lap, a creatured silhouette, skinny but not tall, aching bones. Of course, homage to Roger, <laughs> to Roger Clark for doing a much better job, but such a visual image of Harlan with the weight of the world on his shoulders. That's a visceral scene and it's a visual scene. And for me at this point, it's only chapter one. I'm always interested to hear if that was your starting point to introduce readers to Harlan. Because of his character arc, he goes on to, as the plot progresses, slowly lose his grip on things. And I wanted to make sure readers knew that that was not abrupt. It was not something that just happened. It's This is something that he's been dealing with for a really long time. And even though he's got this routine that has served him really well, and he seems to be well-liked, and, and he does small good deeds, that's part of the reason, again, when it comes to plot, I think, unfortunately, in today's literary world, it's like plot is king. And so you've got to go fast, fast, fast. We don't want the reader to put down the book. But I was pretty firm on the fact that I wanted us to have a full day with LeBlanc that didn't have much to do with the plot. It introduced him as a character and showed how he wanted to be helpful in his community. It showed his interactions with folks doing kind things for other people. It showed what other folks thought of him and introduced us to all these characters and kind of set that up, even though, you know, we could have just jumped right in. I thought this was important because I wanted to show the struggle, the internal struggle between what LeBlanc is doing externally and then kind of, like you said, the weight of the world that's going on inside of him. And so as a reader, you're almost just shaking your head like, oh God, like what's going to happen? What is going to happen to this guy? Because this is not sustainable. It can't keep going like this. And that was kind of the reason that we started there. I wanted to start with just kind of a day in the life right? A day in the life and show how LeBlanc interacts with the world around him. And I started rooting for him without even realizing when he has the interaction in the diner with the twins, that whole scene, it's comical, but I'm also very defensive of Harlan. I'm like, hey, let, yes. you know, what are you doing? Leave this guy alone. Sorry, there's my accent. But um, 
So you set that up so well. Not only do we get the twins, but as the novel progresses, we get this, like I said, it's only 239, 240 pages long. Everybody from Cal to Karen, the heron that shows up, you know, Cassie and Jean, there's all of these, all of these characters that surround Harlan. I'm trying to not include any spoilers. Uh, my favorite characters are Deacon and Remus and, and listeners. You'll just have to figure out why, because I don't want to say anything about that, but what a beautiful part of the book. And then you give us, as we've talked about so many times before, you bring us, I don't know, you're the master of villain writing right now for me. Um, you give villains to us in all things left while you give us Grimes. In River Sing Out, we get the Thin Man. And these are chilling, chilling characters. And in Beast of the Earth, we get Michael's dad, Monday Fisher. I do not even know how to describe this character. He is terrifying to me. All three of them are chilling. All three of them are frightening. Is there one of the three that you, I don't want to say that you liked more, but is there one that was a little bit extra for you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, it, I may be a prisoner of the moment, but I think Monday is the one that scares me the most in part because of his own <laughs> absolute horridness. But Grimes was one of those villains that it wasn't personal. It was collective. Grimes had these big ideas. And the only way that you're going to get caught in his wrath is if you represent something that, that he's lashing out against. And then the same thing with the thin man, even more so the thin man is like, for the most part, unless you did something wrong, you're fine. He was a very terrifying character, but only for folks that cross him. With Monday, I think that it's the scariest because he doesn't really have a rhyme or reason. He just He's psychotic almost. And yet in this very measured and steely way, the way he talks to people scares the shit out of me. I don't know if we can say that on the podcast. Um, and also because I think that it's it's the most real. For instance, when I was growing up in East Texas, the tales of a misspent youth, I, I found myself in a lot of maybe not the safest situations or not with the best group of folks. And, and there were these people and you could just tell, like you could, you could just tell by looking at them that there was something different about them, something dangerous. And what was worse is they could tell that everyone else could tell. And they almost kind of like took pride in that. And you'd be sitting around this fire, not even really sure how you ended up at this party. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're standing next to this guy that maybe he just got out of the pen and he knows that you're uncomfortable. And so he takes almost this deviant pleasure in saying these things that could be scaring you, you know, like that could be making you uncomfortable. And then you have to kind of choose how to react. And, and that's kind of how I felt when I was writing Mondays. Uh, you know, there's a scene again, no spoilers, but there's a scene where he goes to visit a friend of his that he ran with before he was locked up. And this is his friend that he's going to see. And his friend is nervous the entire time. This guy might just snap and kill me right now. Who knows? Or we might have a great time. It all depends on what's going on in this crazy person's brain. And so to bring that into Michael's life, I wanted to give Monday a chapter or two on his own to set up for the reader just how insane this guy is, what a dark cloud there 
there is that comes with him so that when he's reintroduced into Michael's life, we understand why Michael is so on edge all the time and so scared of this guy yeah, and thank, understands very much for that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so Thanks then he understands how messed up it is and, and this is not normal, you know? So yeah, no, Monday, I think is the one that is my favorite in that sense. And then I didn't like with Grimes, we explained everything. We explained like his motivations and why he was doing what he was doing with Monday. We just very lightly hint at a few things. We hint at his past a little bit. We hint at his intellect a little bit, which to me, that's scarier when you don't completely pull back the curtain, you know, and I hope that I never run into any more Monday fishers in my life. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I, I totally, I totally agree with that. That level of malevolence, like he can take what's happening. He can rationalize the act that he's going to commit. He's king of the swamp and you you don't even know what game he's playing, but he knows that, the game. That That is such a perfect way to put it. It's like he's playing this game and you're in it, but you don't know what the rules are or what the next move is supposed to be. So you don't even know how you've offended him or why. Or, yes, that's, that's really good. <laughs> I like that. Well said. I spent a little too much time reading the scenes <laughs> on the page. <sighs> okay, listeners, hang on onto your hats when you when you get there. Um, there is also for longtime readers of yours, there's an Easter egg or two in this book. <laughs> and there's a play on words. There's a book called Some Things Made Tame by Mitchell Calhoun. And you know, when those little Easter eggs pop up, there is a lot of yelling and screaming that I do because I get it. I get <laughs> that reference. Like Captain America says, I get that reference. So I do get that reference. Tell me about throwing that in well there's there's a few things at play one is you're writing something so heavy it really helps to lighten it up for yourself a little bit occasionally so that you don't just get completely lost in that dark place and so i do try to throw little funny things in there usually to do with my friends so there's the mention of a guy named travis campbell who's a wide receiver for texas a&m it's just it's a throwaway line that has to do with one of our characters kind of why one of our characters is sad and one of those things where you have to come up with a name so why not make it somebody you know i know a buddy of mine i grew up with named travis campbell is a, is a huge texas a&m fan a and graduate and so i thought yeah let's put him in there as a wide receiver if you have read my other work there's always some reference to calhoun the podcast <laughs> listeners can't see it but I'm, I'm wearing a calhoun's custom catering cap right now mitchell luke calhoun is my best friend from childhood we grew up together i always find a way to throw him in to these books in some form or fashion but anyway, first one I thought, well, let's let's make him an author. And what are we going to make him an author of? Well, again, not to give away a lot of spoilers, but with all things left wild, the storyline could have gone one of two ways. There weren't there weren't a lot of ways that it could have gone. As a reader, you're following these two characters that are on this collision course, and you know that they're going to collide. And there's a decision that has to be made. And so I struggled with that decision the entire time I was writing All Things Left Wild. And so when it got to Peace of the Earth, I wanted a point to be made that it could have just as easily gone the other way. And so we just flipped everything. Instead of all things left wild, we flipped every word and made it some things made tame and didn't want the book to be by James Wade. So we made it by Mitchell Calhoun. And, and it is an Easter egg and it is a big ha-ha. But at the same time, it fits so perfectly, perfectly. perfectly into the narrative because of what Michael Fisher is struggling with, right? He is struggling with the whole theme of the book. It do When do we take justice in our own hands or how do we remain moral. I mean, you know, we hear the quote all the time about it's not bad men that ruin the world. It's, it's apathetic.
empathetic men. And so like, when, when do we engage and when do we not? And when do we forgive and show grace versus when do we punish or try to rehabilitate? And, and again, it's all these questions that I don't think that there are great answers for, because I think you can make an argument to any side of them. And so that's kind of what I did in all things left wild is I just had to pick one and go with it. And so it's like, this is what could have happened if it had not gone that way. But, but yeah, that's, that's a good eye. Thank you for noticing. Cause that is a little, you know, you got to do something to lighten us up a little bit. Also, I love what Stacy Swan says. Anything that Stacy Swan says, I will listen to read whatever it is. She says, beast of the earth is a beautiful gut punch of a novel. And it really is. And it's so tightly written. I will say really quickly, that is a huge shout out. Thank you. Congratulations to Michael Signorelli, who's there in New York, who's the editor for Beast of the Earth, because he knew what I wanted to do from a philosophical standpoint. And he knew what Blackstone wanted to sell from a story and plot driven standpoint. And he married the two. I want to say that I think Beast of the Earth comes in at around like 62,000 words or something, which is short and tight, but it started closer to 80 maybe or 79. And so to cut that much of a, of a novel, but I don't feel like it lost anything. And that is just such a testament to a good editor. So Michael Signorelli, I will send you a link to this podcast when it comes out so that you can know how much I appreciated you waiting through all these pages and holding my hand and saying, it's going to be okay, but we're going to take this out. <laughs> I mean, it's a fantastic finished product. And it's also excellent for book discussions. Where can readers find you as you're doing your book promotion? What's the best place for people to find you? Uh, the two places I'm most active are on Instagram, which is at James Wade Ryder, and then my website, jameswaderider.com. I call it my website because it has my name and likeness on it, but it is in truth, it is my wife's website because she is the one who puts everything on there. Sometimes I go to it and it's got like a cool banner ad or something on it. And I'm like, where did this come from? She, oh, I threw that in there. But yeah, uh, Instagram and on my website, sign up for our newsletter. We do that once a month. And yeah, and just try to, if we're in your area, come out for the next few months, I'm going to be chained to the desk. We're working on the edits for novel number four right now with Michael Cigarelli, who I just gave so many kudos to. And that was my (laughs) next question. Anything you can share? (laughs) Yeah. So this one is, it's called Hollow Out the Dark. It's going to be my fourth novel and it is set in the Great Depression and Prohibition in East Texas. So we're going to go back to East Texas, which is where River Sing Out was set, but we're going to go back in time as well. And this is, I I think, I, I don't know, it's again, it's not finished product yet, but I think this is going to be my most accessible novel, like my most approachable. So there's still, I mean, obviously my goal is first and foremost is always going to be like poetic prose and a theme or a philosophical stance that makes folks think. But we've also got bootlegging and car chases and twists and turns and backstabbing and just a lot of the stuff that it's been in my other novels, but not so heavily, right? So this is going to be my first, uh, We've had romances in the other novels, but this is my first passionate romance. And so I just love trying new things with the writing and focusing on different types of characters that I don't want all the characters to ever seem the same. But you will be happy to know that there is a whole set of bad guys in this one. 
And so it's just going to be a lot of fun. I think the projected date is March of 2024. I think Blackstone's excited about this one and they want a pretty long runway to try to get as much buzz out there as they can. So hopefully we can visit again next year and be promoting that owl. I cannot wait for that. And before I let you go, any book recommendations you'd like to share with listeners? Yeah, absolutely. That's the other thing is Jordan and I both are just always have two, three books going at the same time. I, I only do one fiction book at a time. I, Jordan somehow can do like three or four. I think she read three Chris and Hannah novels over the course of like a week or two. She had like one on audiobook and then she had one from the library and then one that she bought. Anyway, um, no, uh, I would say Matt Bondurant's Oleander City was maybe my non-Cormac McCarthy pick of 2022 of course, if you haven't read The Passenger and Stella Maris, I don't know what you're waiting for. Go read that. Um, Kim Garza's The Last Karen Kawas. She, it was a debut, which is just, that's grossly unfair because it was so good. It was way too good to be her first book. But she's a San Antonio author here in Texas, and she's amazing. There's so many. I'll email you, and you can just that's share it with, <laughs> with all your readers I and will, listeners. But. <laughs> I will do all of that. And I also do want to thank both you and Jordan for being so supportive of your library system. I love seeing the pictures of you guys using the library. So I really want to just say how much I really just appreciate that so very much. It, it is quite literally our pleasure. I mean, we I believe so wholeheartedly and, and public libraries and all that they offer a community outside of the invaluable resource of books. Like I, th- I saw something the other day that said, how cool is it that like at some point in time in our society, we decided that books were so necessary and so invaluable that we had to create this whole thing to where you could get them for free. Um, but of course, now that is you guys, the librarians are, are absolute superheroes in what you take on because it's moved so far beyond that. You know, at our library here in Canyon Lake at the Ty Preston Memorial Library, they they do senior groups like every night they do story time for all different ages we can learn how to play guitar how to garden you know you can it's just it's every there's nothing that you can't go up there to do like if you any kind of community resource like i, I don't know it's it really is just so invaluable for families for seniors for young folks i love it i mean we spend kind of an embarrassing amount of time there that is one of the coolest things where there's always something that we can improve on as a society but i don't think that we could do any better than public libraries. <laughs> oh my gosh, does that warm my heart? Good grief. So thank you for all of that. Please give my love to Jordan and Juniper. And listeners, I will share all of the links on the podcast page for this episode. Today's book, Beasts of the Earth by today's guest, James Wade, is on shelves everywhere. So please grab a copy at your local library or your local independent bookstore. Beasts of the Earth is published by none other than Blackstone Publishing. James, I am always so glad to see you. And I thank you so much for joining us here on Merrick Library's Top Shelf Podcast. It is, uh, it feels woefully inadequate to say that it was a pleasure to be here, but bless your heart, as we say in Texas, for having to go through and edit all of the rambling I just did to get this into a digestible episode. I'm so sorry. I will send you a gift card. Not necessary. Just make sure I get the galleys of hollow out the dark. That's all, that's all I need. 
Um, listeners, I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Remember to follow Top Shelf at Merrick Library on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find most podcasts. For the latest and the greatest at the Merrick Library, check out our website, MerrickLibrary.org. Special thanks to Merrick Library Director Dan Chusmere, Assistant Director Diane Bondi, and the Merrick Library Board of Directors for getting us off the ground and on to the airwaves. Until the next time, remember to keep us on your top shelf.